Our Father, we hear light shining into darkness. What a great picture of what happened at Christmas. The light of your sun shining into the darkness of the world. And we know darkness. We were born in darkness. We're surrounded by darkness. We have the reminders that we live in a darkened world coming and meeting us every single day. We meet the darkness of ignorance, our own clouded understanding, our own questions without answers, assumptions without basis, people living with complete disregard for what is good and beneficial. We meet the darkness in sin and pain, giving in to the temptation of false promises, hating those, hating those maddening hordes of people who surround us, trampling on the voiceless, stabbing our neighbors with our sharp tongues. Yes, darkness is all too real and all too evident. And yet, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Yes, light, and not a dim light, a great light, substantial, brilliant, clear. The light of your revelation, the Son of God coming to earth to overtake the darkness of ignorance by showing true God for all to see. The Son of God coming to overtake the darkness of sin by breaking the power of sin and death and making the way open to life. The celebrations that we have of this season are a reflection of this reality that light shines into darkness. So as our days continue to shorten and, and darkness starts creeping in, even before the work day is done for many of us, we see the glowing lights that are decorating Christmas trees and wreaths and houses, and those remind us of the great reality we're celebrating. Light has shined into darkness, and darkness can never overcome it. No, darkness can do nothing to stop the brilliance of the light of Christ shining into our hearts. So, Father, when we are tempted by darkness to despair, when we are tempted by the darkness to give up, when we're tempted by the darkness to hurt other people, when we're tempted by the darkness to turn away from you, once again, shine the great light of your Son to break the chains of darkness, to fill us with your joy and to fill us with your peace and to fill us with your hope, to fill us with your love that are mark the coming of your Son. Father, guide us, your people, to the light of your Son that we might find life. We pray this in the strong name of Christ, the light shining into the darkness. Amen. Event is a great time of year, don't you agree? Um, I'm going to make an assumption about you this morning. Uh, whether or not you are a Christian, you are finding yourself in a church on a Sunday morning in December. I'm going to assume that if someone asked you, what is Christmas really about? You're going to say something about Jesus. So whatever you end up saying, you might talk about gift giving or decorations or that kind of special holiday food you make. I, I know probably in the next week or two, I'm going to make uh, what's called Stullen. It's this uh, German sweetbread that's absolutely delicious. Um, at least one person in our family thinks so, and therefore he makes it every year. But whatever you say about Christmas, you might even say something about Santa and elves and presents and reindeer and all those things, but somewhere along the line, I'm going to assume that you are going to say something about Jesus being born, right? It's Christmas. Christmas is about Jesus being born. Well, great. I'm glad that you made it that far. But do you really know what the birth of Jesus means? Do you, do you know what the birth of Jesus is really deeply about? Do you really understand the difference that that makes for how you live your life day after day after day? 
Well, it's easy for us to assume, I think, that because we can identify the central figure of Christmas as Jesus, that's all, that's all we need. Okay, well, Jesus is the reason for the season. Great. It makes a nice little jingle, nice little rhyme, and, and that's all we need to know. This is about Jesus. But I think rather than make that assumption, it's important for us to really spend some time preparing for the birth of Jesus, really preparing in this Advent season, the season where we're anticipating the birth of Jesus, really preparing our hearts for what this really means. So we're going to spend the next four weeks on an Advent series that's called, Why Did the Son of God Become Human? I mean, really, that's the key question about Christmas. Why did the Son of God become human? If you can't answer that, then whether or not you can identify Jesus as the central figure of Christmas, you've missed the point here. So we're going to spend four weeks answering this question. We're going to see four kind of big answers to this question. And and as we answer that, we're going to discover that we're going through the major movements of the Christian faith. We're seeing who God is. We're seeing who we are as humans. We're, We're seeing what the solution to our biggest, deepest problem is. And we're seeing where this is all heading. We're seeing the course of history. So we're seeing the big movements of the Christian faith. The past couple of weeks here, I've been really excited about this series because it's such a great opportunity for us as a church to really explore what it means to celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus, what, what the birth of Jesus really is and, and why that really makes a difference for our lives. I, I want to mention one thing as we get started here. In the uh, bulletins, there's a little insert uh, that serves as a devotional guide. Um, it's just a kind of one-page front and back thing, and it has a question listed for for every day of the week. And I, I invite you to, to do that with your, with your families or as in your personal devotion time. Uh, it's just a, a quick reminder that, that focuses our attention on, on what we're really getting at here. Why did the Son of God become human? Why did this really happen? Now please pray with me as we prepare our hearts for this message. God of grace, God of love, Move our hearts and our minds to a renewed sense of wonder this morning, the beautiful miracle that your Son walked the earth. Warm up the coldness of our hearts. Shine your light into the darkness of our minds. Remove the double blinders of sin and ignorance from our eyes and bring us to true knowledge of you. Father, send your Spirit to help us, we pray. Amen. Okay, who do you think God is? This is a question that humans have been asking forever. So 4,000 years ago, a, a Sumerian wrote out a prayer called, Sumerian, sorry, wrote out a prayer called A Prayer to Every God. And if you read this prayer, it's, it's evident that this person is in a lot of distress, and, and they're looking for any kind of answer here, but they're not really sure who they're praying to. If it's a singular person, multiple persons, you know, they're looking for some sort of divine entity to hear the p- appeal and to help. So this is the prayer. This is the start of that prayer. May the fury of my Lord's heart be quieted toward me. May the God who is not known be quieted toward me. May the goddess who is not known be quieted toward me. May the God whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. May the goddess whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me, and on and on and on through this cycle. I mean, it's a really sad prayer if you think about it. Here's someone who really needs some relief, someone who really feels that someone up there might be able to help, and yet they have no idea who they're even addressing in prayer. 
It's basically a prayer to anyone out there who might be listening, who might be able to help me. So if you ask this Sumerian person 4,000 years ago, what is God like? Well, at least from the basis of that prayer, they would say, I have no idea. I just desperately need some help. Because that's 4,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, we'd become much more sophisticated. We'd made a lot of progress, and we'd come to a lot of understanding. Paul visited the city of Athens in Greece, and, and if anyone knew about God, it was the Greeks, or rather about gods and goddesses. I mean, the Greeks had this whole pantheon of gods from, from Aphrodite to Zeus, and, and they had a whole catalog of stories of, of virtue and vice and heroics and intrigue surrounding this whole pantheon of gods. So people of Athens, of all people, would be able to give you an answer to the question, what is God like? They'd say, well, pick a god and I'll tell you a story about that god. We've got lots of stories. But even here, when Paul visited and saw all the altars in, in Athens, he noticed that there was evidence that there was at least a little bit of uncertainty about the divine. So there's all these altars to all these named gods with all these stories accompanying these gods. And then in the midst of all those altars, there's another one that says, to an unknown god. So even when they have all this understanding of gods and goddesses, they still understand that there might be some sort of god or goddess who's outside their sphere of knowledge. Okay, so 4,000 years ago in Sumeria, no idea what God's like, but a desperate cry out to this god. 2,000 years later, 2,000 years ago, Paul visiting Athens and them having a whole scads of gods, and yet a little bit of uncertainty. But what about now? When we ask that question, what is God like, how would you answer that question? Or perhaps, how would your neighbor answer that question? And what do we know about God? And perhaps equally importantly, how do we know it? Well, as the Greeks were much more sophisticated than those people 2,000 years before him, them, the uh, ignorant Sumerian, so we today in the Western world are much more sophisticated than our Greek predecessors 2,000 years ago. So in 4,000 years, we've made a tremendous amount of progress, and we know quite a bit about God. A pastor I know was talking to someone about their concept of God. And the person was saying, you know, this is what I think about God. My idea of God is this. And they started explaining what they thought about God. And said some pretty general things, some things that everyone kind of vaguely believes, maybe that would kind of cross all the religions of the world, and kind of said some nice things, some things we think, oh, that's... That's nice. I do hope God is like that. And then maybe a few surprising things. But, but finally the pastor stopped and said, Well, where did you get those ideas about God? Well, the man stopped to think. And in a moment of great insight and surprising honesty, he said, Well, I got them from that movie Bruce Almighty with Morgan Freeman playing God. This is a true story. I'm not making this up. Someone actually thought that. Their, their actual conception of God came from a Morgan Freeman movie. We have come a long, long way from those dumb Sumerians and those superstitious Greeks, haven't we? If we really trace down our beliefs and our concept of God, I wonder how many of us would find similar embarrassing realizations. Not from Morgan Freeman movies, of course not but maybe from something our favorite uncle told us when we were a child that has kind of stuck with us. 
You know, this phrase that we all assume is from the Bible, God helps those who help themselves, is in this category. That's actually, turns out, from Aesop and not really from the Bible. And yet it has sticking power because you hear this as a child. You think, okay, that's in the Bible. It's something about God. And that filters through how you conceive of God. But how can we really know about God? How can we know truth about God? Not just our suppositions or what we'd like to believe about God. How can we really know about God? Well, this is where we turn to the birth of Jesus. We're going to ask three questions this morning to, to really see how the birth of Jesus is the answer to this problem. So first we're going to ask, well, what happened at Christmas? And we're going to ask, why did that happen? And then, what is the result of that? So three questions about Christmas. First, what happened at Christmas? Well, the Gospel of John gives us the clearest and most concise picture of what happened. In two verses, we're going to discover the whole breadth of what happened. So we start with John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So one brief sentence, three very important things. So the person that that John is identifying here as Word, capital W, the Word, there are three important things. First, the Word is in the beginning. In a sense, this is a renewed creation account. Genesis 1.1 begins in the beginning. And, and John's saying, well, let's start back in Genesis again, kind of rewrite Genesis. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. That means that the Word is preexistent. There's, we can never say that there was a time when the Word did not exist. The Word was in the beginning, preexistent. Secondly, the Word was with God. So the word is in relationship to the true God, the creator of the universe, in in John's terms, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the word was preexistent in the beginning. The word was in relationship with God, with God. And then the final clause, the word was God. That means that the word is true God. Not just, we could kind of soften the blow by saying the word is divine. That could kind of give us a little bit different of a notion here, but, but that's not the word that John uses because it's not what he means. There is a different Greek word that would say the word was divine, but he's saying, no, the word was God, true God. He's talking about the word identified as this same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who created everything. The word preexisted from eternity. The word is in relationship with God. The word is, in fact, true God. So that's who the word is. Now John 1.14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. If we take John 1.1 seriously, this is one of the most shocking statements in the Bible. The Word existing from eternity in relationship with God, in fact, true God, the Word became flesh. And again, John could have softened the language and said essentially the same thing by saying the word became human. He could have used a different word. He could use anthropos, which is kind of the general term for humans. But instead, he uses the word flesh. I mean, flesh is a term that that Paul uses often to talk about our propensity to sin and rebel against God. Flesh is about human weakness. It's about us and all of our, our bodily existence. The word became flesh. It's an incredible movement from John 1.1 to John 1.14. The Word, true God, became flesh, true human. This is the theological term for this is incarnation. 
And that's what Christmas really is about. The birth of Jesus means incarnation. It means the word of God became flesh. Now, who's John talking about? It's easier for us to make an assumption here, but, but we really need to look at the verses here. If you just look at 1-1, one, one, there might be a little bit of confusion. You'd say, okay, there's the word, but then the continuation of one fourteen clarifies who he's talking about here as the word. So one fourteen, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And here's where he further identifies. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That means that the word he's talking about in one one and one fourteen, the word is identified as the Son of God. And that means he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the word become flesh, the Son of God, true God, taking on human flesh, true human. True God, true human. That's what the incarnation is. So what happened at Christmas? The Son of God became human. I think, yes, yes, of course. It's Christmas. We've heard this, I don't know, 96 times, some of us. But it's, it's more special than we realize. I mean, if you think about that, nothing like this has ever happened before. Nothing like it. And nothing like it has happened since. This is a completely unique event. The incarnation is something that's unlike anything we've ever heard about before. I I was trying to come up with some sort of uh, illustration to kind of give traction to this idea of incarnation, the Son of God become human, and I just, for all the life of me, I I couldn't come up with that. I mean, the best I could think of was, okay, well, a human could kind of take on, you know, become an ant and live in the world of an ant colony, and and that would be quite a bit of condescension, right? There would be quite a bit of humiliation for a human to take on the form of an ant. But really, if you think about that, there's one thing fundamentally that we have in common with ants. We are created as humans. Ants are created as ants. We're created beings, just like ants. So in that sense, we're on the same plane. Whereas this is talking about God, true God, the Word who was in the beginning, preexistent, not a created being. The Word, true God, creator. Bridging that gap down, that infinite chasm that separates creator from created, the Son of God becoming human. And as I was wrestling with my frustration of not coming with an illustration, I think, you know what, that's actually true. It's right that I can't come up with an illustration for that. There's no way that we can have anything fully analogous to what happened at the incarnation. The Son of God becoming human. Nothing like that has ever happened before. And nothing like it has happened since. A totally unique event. And it changes everything. So what happened? The Son of God became human. True God became true human. So why does that make a difference? First, we've got to ask, why did this happen? Why incarnation? Why did the Son of God become human? This is our base question this month. Well, this is where we have to remember where we started here. On our own, we simply cannot come to true, genuine knowledge of God. We simply can't do it. The best we can do is make statements like, well, my idea of God is, or, or I think God is like this. So the philosophers have their idea, the scholars have their idea, the poets have their idea. Everyone has their own idea of who God is. But the problem is when we do this, we invariably end up painting a picture of God that is sort of equal parts pop culture and imagination and kind of our gut instinct. 
But what we end up with is a God that we like because it's the God that we want, a God who looks more or less like us. Hence the old saying, God created humans in his image and humans return the favor. We've created God in our own image. We've got the God that we want. Well, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans at the start of that gives a, a pretty apt analysis of what we do when that is what we, uh, when we try to come up with God on our own. He says in Romans 1, 22 and 23, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Well, we might leave out the birds and animals and reptiles, but it's the same idea. In our wisest moments, we're writing God as we think God might be, but it has no kind of connection to reality. There's no way to verify our little idea of God being anything of what God truly is. We show that we are complete fools, trading truth for lies. But this is the problem. What else can we do? What else can the best of us, the smartest of us, the wisest of us, the brightest, what can we really do to know God? Well, we can kind of use our minds and conceive of who God might be. But we're at a total loss. We just can't do it on our own. The incarnation is the answer. The book of Hebrews starts like this, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The Son of God became human to show us God, truly. That is why incarnation, that is why Christmas. The Son of God became human because God wanted us to know who he really is. So we wouldn't be kind of shooting out ideas into the dark, having no idea if they're connected to who God really is. No, God wanted us to really know who he was. In the past, he used human intermediaries, the prophets, but now he has sent his own Son so that we can see God. Truly, Jesus is showing true God. So, what happened? Well, incarnation. The Son of God became human. Why did it happen? To show us true God. Now, think again about that man who got his conception of God from the movie Bruce Almighty. What that man is seeing is a particular actor, Morgan Freeman, who is acting in a way that's guided by a director who is basing his direction on, a screen, uh, on what the screenwriters wrote down. Now, why did the screenwriters write? They wrote to make a living. The screenwriters write their scripts so that they can entertain people, because if you entertain people, people will buy your scripts, and then you'll make money. So the primary purpose of this screenwriting is to make money, and the secondary purpose is to entertain. So this man is getting his concept of God through layers of interpretation and adaptation. So Morgan Freeman interpreting and adapting the instructions that he got from the director who's interpreting and adapting what he sees on the screenplay and so on and so on. And at the basis of that, the foundation of that, undergirding all of that is is a reason that has nothing to do with showing true knowledge of God. The only purpose for that is to make money and to entertain people. 
Contrast that with what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus. Verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being. The exact representation of God's true being. So which of those two sources are you going to trust? What happened? The Son of God became human, incarnation. Why did it happen? To show us God, truly. So what's the result of that? One sentence from Jesus is all we need here. John 14, 9. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The Son of God became human to show us who God really is, to show us true God. And what that means is when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. (laughs) This is incredible. If you really want to know who God actually is beyond your little ideas of who he might be, you look at his Son. The Bible has a whole bunch of books within it. It's, it's a book of books, and four of those books are gospel narratives. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all recordings of the experience of these gospel writers of Jesus. So each of those is telling the story of Jesus through the unique lens of that author. As we read these four gospel accounts, we discover who God is. That's what it means for us to see Jesus and therefore see God. So as we read these gospel narratives, we're finding out who God really is. This is God's revelation to us. And what we find might surprise us. In my my freshman year of college, I had two friends from uh, Florida. They were from Clearwater, Florida, on the the Gulf side of the state. Now, why they were coming to uh, Chicago to go to school and spend the whole winter there and summer back in Florida is completely beyond me. Florida's a beautiful place. As much as I like northern climates, I kind of wonder what they were thinking when they uh, came to school in uh, northern Illinois. But nonetheless, it was entertaining for those of us who were from northern climates to watch. Anyway, these two girls had never experienced snow before. So their freshman year, they come up to Chicago. Never experienced snow before. That means that the only thing they know about snow is what they've seen in movies or television or or what they've heard about in books or, or these kind of things. Never experienced snow. So when they think of snow, they think, well, it's white. I've seen pictures. It's white. It theoretically is some form of precipitation. It's theoretically crystallized water. They understand the science of it. and They kind of have some sense of what it might look like to fall. And they get a snow globe and kind of shake it up. And, okay, well, that's interesting. And they know, you know, it's pretty. It's kind of Christmas spirity and and these kind of things. That's all they know about snow. But they've never touched snow. They've never packed snow into a snowball and thrown it, or they've never tasted snow, they've never had it crunch underneath their feet as they walk along on top of it. So, the first snow of the year. Fall turned to winter and we got our first big snow. I still remember this. Walking to the dining hall as it's snowing down for the first time this year and seeing these two girls experience snow for the first time. Uh, one of the girls, you know, they had their, you know, they're bundled up in their big coats and they're freezing to death and they've got their hands in their pockets, but it looks kind of pretty. And so one of the girls boldly ventured her hand out of her coat pocket and, and for the first time snow fell on her hand and she felt it. And she pulled back her hand and she said, it's cold. It's wet. Yes, it is. 
I mean, all of us know that, right? My, my son knows that. He knew that before he was a year old. He knew that snow was cold and wet. But if you'd never experienced it before, how would you know? This is one of my favorite memories of early college because it's, it's the innocence of discovery. It's, it's being surprised that what you're finding out is true when you actually experience something versus just reading about it or hearing about it. As we realize that seeing Jesus is seeing God, we're in for some surprises. We're in for a sense of awe and wonder over who God is because if you see Jesus, you have seen God the Father. If you have seen Jesus, you have truly seen God. Think about what that means. If you want to know how God feels about children, watch Jesus spend time with them when the disciples thought he was too busy. If you want to know how God feels about stuck-up religious people, watch Jesus yell at the Pharisees and send them away. If you want to know what makes God mad, see how Jesus picks up a whip and scares people out of the temple because they're using religious things to make money. If you want to know how God reacts to outcasts and people on the fringe of society, see how Jesus touches the leper and has time for an old woman who's unclean. If you want to know how God treats Sinners, obvious sinners, see Jesus accept the worship and adoration of a prostitute. Some of us have heard these stories about Jesus for so long that we've, we've lost the sense of wonder and discovery here. But it's an incredible truth that if you see Jesus, you have seen God. Jesus is the actual, true revelation of who God actually is. If you see him, you know God. If you experience Jesus, you're experiencing God. That is an incredible reality. I've been praying for the past couple weeks that God would give us fresh eyes to together go through this series and discover who God really is. May God build in us a sense of wonder over, over his son, over his son come as a human. And of course, if we're going to do that, our starting point has to be repenting of that, of that silly practice of just making up our own ideas about who God is. Listen, you will never accurately know God and you will never truly experience him if you keep using such poor sources as movies like Bruce Almighty or or that thing that someone told me when I was eight years old that sounded right or whatever my gut instinct is telling me we're not stuck there anymore God has sent his son as the true communication of who he is he used to send prophets but then he sent his own son the exact representation of who God truly is we have such a better way of knowing God now. The Son of God became human so that we could actually know God, and that means that we do now know Him truly as we experience Him in His Son. We actually can know God truly. So if you really want to know God, stop looking everywhere else and start looking at Jesus. Start looking at God's own revelation of who He is. The birth of Jesus means that we can now know God truly. And that realization leads us down this path of discovery that we're taking this month. 
We're going to find out who God really is and what difference that really makes for us. When we go on that path of discovery, we will discover that God is far more wonderful than we ever could have imagined. We discover that God really does love us. Unstoppably, he loves us. He loves the unlovely, us. In our darkest, most repulsive manner, God loves us. We find that God delights in having a meaningful relationship with us. That is incredible. We've got banners up here at the, the front of the sanctuary. They're proclaiming the themes of Advent, joy, peace, hope, love. But if you don't know who God really is, none of those is deeply possible. I mean, we might come with, with a little semblance of, of any of those things, but, but not truly and deeply. We can never truly and deeply experience these things if we don't really know who God is. And yet the Son of God became human so that we know true God. He has demonstrated who he is through his son, the exact representation of his being. And because of that, yes, we can have lasting joy, not the little fleeting moments of happiness that we tend to call joy, but true, deep, lasting joy, the joy of knowing that God loves us. It's when we know God, when we experience him in Jesus, that yes, finally we can have holistic peace, not a little moment of quiet here and there, but holistic peace because we have that that rock who is our foundation through all the storms of life we know that god is our king and we are secure so we have actual deep holistic peace when we experience god in jesus christ that is when we actually have secure hope not the sort of wishful thinking oh i hope this happens someday but actual secure hope of knowing that god has promised good for us and because of who he is it will come true because we have seen him in jesus and when we experience jesus for the first time in our lives we know true deep abiding love not the little moments of affection that we tend to call love in our society but True, self-giving, self-sacrificing love that is directed at our good. So yes, Jesus is coming. That is what we're celebrating. Jesus is coming. The Son of God became human and now we have love and joy and peace and hope because we can know who God really is. We have heard who He is and it has made all the difference for us. In light of that, let us offer a prayer of thanks. God, you are good beyond our imagination. We never could have written you as incredible as you are, and yet you sent your son, and now we do see that this is who you really are. You're not these little concepts of the philosophers or the poets or anyone else. No, you are true God, amazing God. Father, move our hearts to see Jesus and to see you and then to worship you with everything we have. This is our prayer and this is our joy at the beginning of Advent this year. We pray this in the name of Christ, the Son of God, become human. Amen.